Friends, if you've lived here for any time at all, maybe uh, you've only been here for a few weeks, you'll already know that this particular job uh, is always done in vain. On your car, in your car, on your shoes, in your shoes, in your house, in your office, in your bed, in your shower, on everything, in everything, there is sand. Everywhere. It's everywhere. It's unavoidable. We think we can control it. We clean it. We remove it. We vacuum it. We keep it out. Uh, We try to keep it in. Whatever. This is crazy. We know it. It's so frustrating. We know that it's all just going to blow back in or be brought back in. Yet we do it over and over and over again. Friends, we know that these are vain attempts. Now, vain attempts are what we are going to see over and over again in our text today with regards to the way the nations, that is just all people, try to live against or in opposition to God. As we look at Psalm 2, we'll see the glories of his kingdom. That although God is in complete control, people constantly, continually rage and plot against him all of This in vain against his anointed king, King Jesus. Friends, turn with me to uh, Psalm 2, which by its name, you can tell it comes very early uh, in the Psalter. That's just all the Psalms together. Uh, And I think it's closely linked, uh, if not incredibly closely linked, with Psalm 1. Psalm 1 shows our duty, uh, and this Psalm just reveals to us uh, our Savior. Uh, And together they are the introduction to the whole Psalter and uh, set out idealized uh, portrayals of the life of man that encourages Christians uh, to look to the future. Where, friends, there is a coming Messiah, as we've heard already this morning, and one that will reign forever. We'll see, uh, I hope we will see together why this is called a royal psalm. Uh, I think speaking clearly about Jesus. It's also a prophetic psalm for the way in which it speaks of what is to come through the incarnation, what that will mean. Uh, Although not clear uh, from this text in particular, we also know that the author is David. Uh, This is confirmed through inspiration uh, as in Acts 4.25, the apostle Paul confirms uh, the author of uh, David, uh, author to be David in writing He says, who through the mouth of our father, David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? So we can suggest pretty clearly that this psalm was written about a thousand years uh, before Jesus uh, and the incarnation. And so it's now about 3000 years old. Turn to Psalm 2, pretty much there. Hopefully you'll see in the middle of your Bible. And I'm going to read it for us uh, now before we jump into the text. Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? Kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrifying them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. 
I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. As we look at this psalm together, I think the main point for our time, uh, if you're taking notes, is God has anointed his king to bring peace. God has anointed his king to bring peace. So take refuge in him and be blessed. So take refuge in him and be blessed. Or reject him and perish or reject him and perish. God has anointed his king to bring peace, so take refuge in him and be blessed, or reject him and perish. And we, I think the text just breaks into four sections, so I have uh, four points for us this morning. The first one of these, just looking at verses one to three there. Christ's kingdom has enemies. Christ's kingdom has enemies. Verses one to three. So from that very first question of why there in verse 1, I think we hear that shock, that immediate shock in David's voice at what he is considering. I think that we'll see that David is describing not just one event, it's not just something in his reign, but he is describing the timeless and cosmic realities of this world and its relationship with God. It is from this point of view that I think we see his utter astonishment and horror. Now, between the ESV translation, the NIV, and the KJV, we get a very clear picture, I think, of what he is saying. Now, in our translation, you heard it there, we have the word rage. This suggests, I think, doing something aggressive. It sounds deliberate. It sounds angry. We know what it's like to rage against someone in our car, maybe to to raise your arm or uh, point a finger at someone, to rage against them. Who is it that's raging here? It's the nations, or as the KJV tells us, it's the heathen. It's the people that don't follow God. Friends, before you became a Christian, this was you. It is those outside of the people of God, it is them, and that was us, that were raging against God, arms thrown up in the air like wild creatures raging against the God of the universe. Instead of the word rage, the NIV gives us the word conspire. Why do the nations conspire? I think that's a helpful word. As in the following sentence, you see that it's the peoples that are plotting in vain. Plotting conspiring. All of this language for us shows how deliberate, how specific our rebellion is against God in our hearts. Make no mistake, this is deliberate. I think we also see here clearly it is in vain. Now from the outset, it should be clear for us that the stability 
the surety, the everlasting nature of God's kingdom. That's so stable, like nothing else in our word. The nations can rage all they want, but to use the word vain here shows that it is a complete and utter waste of time. Without cause would be another good way to translate the word there, or without meaning, vain. Friend, it is the same with you. When you live your life purely for yourself and in your own strength, it's completely devoid of meaning. To live in pursuit of your own kingdom, this is telling us, is completely futile. Now we all know someone, whether it's your neighbor, your boss, the, the sheikh, someone who may have more money than we can ever imagine. But every person, everyone here will stand one day before a holy God and give account for their life. To have lived for yourself will be declared to be all in vain, an utter waste of time, soon forgotten, soon completely meaningless. Anyone who's been to, been to a, a funeral recently, you'll know this. Every life so short and sadly, to our great shock, the world just moves on. People forget. Your life lived for yourself completely in vain. We'll go on to see, I think, what rejection looks like and how to reject Christ is also to reject God. We need to know this morning that those are the same things. Cannot reject Jesus without rejecting God. This is important for us to remember. Now read the news. And I think you know there is so much to disagree on today, whether that's climate change, whether it's Man United or Man City, whether it's the Chennai Super Kings or the Calcutta Knight Riders. Yala Schwarmer or Malik Schwarmer in our date, yet in verses 2 and 3, I think clearly we see that there is one thing every ruler of every nation agrees on, that they cannot stand. They utterly despise the rule of God in their lives and sometimes subtly, but I think more often deliberately, work against God's word and the rule of and reign of Christ. Look at how you enter legal difficulty in India or America, for example, when you say out loud that you believe the Bible. David shows us how they, that is the kings of the earth, I've added the emphasis there, in their little domain or state here on earth, set themselves and take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed. They do this by seeking separation by turning their backs on him together. That is rejecting God's word, his rule. That's what it means there by uh, when they say the bonds and the cords of verse 3. It is God's rule. It is God's word. I was in, uh, some of you may know, I was in Albania uh, in July, a place where Enver Hoxha, that's a dictator uh, in the 20th century, established an atheist state in the 1960s and 70s. A religion there completely banned, Christians executed for their faith, churches were completely knocked down. And what it, if you were here last week, you remember what an amazing thing it was then to be with other Christians, to gather in a church and worship 
the Lord. There, just minutes, literally two streets away from his former house. Christian, take confidence. The kingdom of God, the church of Jesus Christ will always prevail. Make no mistake, this is what kings and rulers do. To have control, their ultimate purpose is hostility to God, and we shouldn't be surprised by it. They intentionally reject God's sovereign rule. That phrase, therefore, as in the text, take counsel together, is really just military language. It's defiant. It's aggressive. They want war. What is it against? Here we see against the Lord and repeated for emphasis against his anointed, against the Lord and against his anointed. Here we have introduced the other subject in this psalm for the first time, the the king in verse 6. The son in verse 7, the one doing the smashing in verse 9, the one who deserves to be kissed or worshipped in verse 12. This is the Lord's anointed in verse 3. Friends, where the nations, where the rulers have declared war, we see that it is he that will bring peace. The anointed, this is the one that is set apart. He is the ruler of God's people. Uh, We saw this with Saul in 1 Samuel 10 and then David in 1 Samuel 16. There is a physical anointing with oil that the king of Israel receives. And then comes the spiritual anointing that God promises and confers. Different to uh, any other, though, is the Lord uh, who is doing the anointing here. No need for a priest. We see that the anointed one takes that role too. This is his anointed. Also for Yahweh, that's the Lord here, we see that he considers opposition to his anointed as opposition to himself. I'm arguing, and make no mistake, that the anointed here is not just another king in the line of David or even David himself, but is Jesus Christ. He is the promised Messiah. He is the holy priest, the true king of Israel. Jesus says in John 16, all that the father has is mine. And in John 10, he too can say, the only one that can say, the father is in me and I am in the father. Friends, what David is writing about here in Psalm 2 is beyond a regular king. It can only be looking forward to Christ. I think this will soon become clear for us. Just as we conclude our first point, we see that God's kingdom, Jesus' kingdom, has enemies. And that this is the kings and the peoples of this world. Friends, make no mistake, if you're a Christian here today, then this was you and it was me. If you're not a Christian here this morning, you are an enemy of God. This leads us to our second point. Christ's kingdom will prevail. Christ's kingdom will prevail. Look there at verses four to six with me. I think there's great comfort uh, in these verses for God's people. God's promises, uh, God's authority are clear, and we see his response to the nations rising against him. 
Look at verse 4. So not phased by the kings of this world and, and in language that really is there just to help us understand his perspective on this rebellion. God is shown to be doing three things here. Look there at verse 4. He's sitting down, conveying that he's just relaxed, not bothered. And where is he sitting? The second thing, where is he sitting? He's sitting in heaven. He's not on earth. He's so above and beyond this world that he created. And the third thing, David tells us that he is laughing. Now we know that God is not like us. This language is there to help us. He doesn't sit or stand or laugh or cry, but this language here to show us how he responds. He's not affected. So ridiculous, so trivial are the rulers and the principalities of this world before him. All of this just summarized in the phrase there, the Lord holds them in derision. The Lord holds them in derision. The dictionary says that this just means contemptuous mockery. That's what derision is, contemptuous mockery. This power and authority of God is a great comfort to the Christian. For those who aren't, if you're not a Christian here this morning, this should be terrifying. This is a warning there to the rulers and to the world. Before whom the moon shineth not, and whose sight the stars are not pure, the nations are as a drop of a bucket, and are counted as small dust of the balance. All nations are before him as nothing. That's how one commentator, William Plumer, describes the situation. The God of the universe, the one who designed and created you, the one who knows every thought of your mind, every word of your mouth, the one who knows your to this mornings, the one who knows your tomorrows. This is the God who we all live before. This is the God we all live before. Whether you trust in him or not doesn't change that. Friends, a holy and a perfect God is he. And in verses 5 and 6, we see how he responds. Should come in all sorts of terrifying ways. God could have done so many different things, but in there in verse 5, it's just stated that God will speak to them. And because of that, just opening his mouth, just by speaking, they will be terrified. This possibility of perishing appears here at this point, and we get our first glimpse of the possibilities of what might happen when God is rejected. To not honor him is to reject him. To not trust him is to reject him. It is his wrath that will be shown. Notice the tense there. This is something to come. This is a prophecy. This is a certainty. This is a declaration. King James translates this as, He will vex them in his sore displeasure. Friends, so other are God's ways, so alien to the world. The people vexed, just meaning stunned into utter silence before him. Woe is me, will be their cry amongst the weeping. And I think an awful realization. God's justice will be seen. Make no mistake, his wrath justly poured on all those 
that rebel? What will this declaration be? Look there, you see the promise given there in the present tense. His king is already anointed. The king is present. He is in control. His king is chosen and has power and authority. The Lord God Almighty has set him on his holy hill. His holy hill, that is his sanctuary. A throne so different, a throne in God's dwelling place, a throne that no one else can fill, that no one else can remove. This throne chosen and secured by God. Friends, no army, no empire, no dictator can stand against it and will be full of fear as they feel his fury. Despite the raging, as we've already heard, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Friends, God's kingdom here on earth has always been established by the adoption of his people and his presence with them. It was a holy nation when promised to Abraham and the people, again reminded in Daniel, Daniel 7. Daniel 7 says, The kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Yet through Christ and confirmed again in the book of Revelation, his kingdom is now made clear by his church. Beautiful gatherings like this, all made visible by his church. The Revelation 11 picks up the same promise. There were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. Christian, the kingdom of Jesus Christ will prevail against every enemy. And that promise continues for us today, the victory already secured by the cross. As we approach our third point, we see that God's plan is unavoidable. It's unstoppable. And God's plan always has been. Our third point, Christ's kingdom will grow. Christ's kingdom will grow. That's verses 7 to 9. Look there in verse 7. We see the speaker now shifts to the first person, speaks of something found before time, something established in eternity, unchangeable, fixed. This is God's decree that he has spoken. And we hear the anointed now speaking. This verse, I think, is really just the the central hinge for this whole psalm where we see God's promises and we see God's authority uh, both coming together here. God's anointed one has the authority of God. God's anointed one is God. God's anointed one has always been. The messianic meaning of these verses just gripping for us. God's promises reinforced and the inner workings of the Godhead here for us, uh, these mysteries displayed. This plan has been set forever, for eternity. The Lord has already said this, verse 7 tells us. We'll see a summary of all that Yahweh has placed on the head of his anointed, and it's remarkable. 
summary being, you are my son. Something said of no other in the same way. Of course, there are other sons, those made, those renewed, those adopted. All of them brought close to God. All of them grateful and there only by his grace. But none of them, no other begotten, no other brought forth, expressing for us just here a a cosmic reality that we cannot quite comprehend. None of them eternally and essentially the Son of God with the same nature, the same attributes as God. He's the only one preeminent over all things, ineffably sublime as bridges would have us sing. No other worthy of praise and honor like he is. One promised in Second Samuel to David, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. One delivered in John 1 at the incarnation. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. One announced in Matthew 3 at his baptism, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And one confirmed in Hebrews 1, the author of the Hebrews, quoting what we've just heard. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Friends, this is Jesus Christ. In eternity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are one in their unity. And for the Christian, this is your Savior. The encouragement for the Christian goes on here. You're mentioned here in verse 8, I think. Yahweh is still speaking here. And he says that the Son of God has a heritage. That the nations are his. Friends, this is us. If you're a Christian here today, then through faith, you have been adopted and chosen, welcomed in as sons and daughters of the king by his grace, by his mercy, fulfilling God's promises for his kingdom to extend all the way to the nations, that they would be grafted into the one true vine. Apostle Paul picks this up for us in Romans 1 when he says, Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. Friends, then the gospel going forth over centuries, coming from the Middle East and going all the way to the ends of the earth. As we read in verse 8, all the way to places like the USA or Eritrea, all the way to Scotland, all the way to Russia, down all the way to South Africa, and as far across as the Philippines. Friends, this was and always has been God's plan. It is the inheritance of the Son. And amazingly, He has brought us in. If you're a Christian, he has brought you into this, equipped you, trained you, given you the gospel to then send you out with the same good news. This section shows us how God will grow his kingdom. 
as his king is established and his inheritance is brought into him. Friends, if you're a Christian here this morning, you are his. God has made you all by the loving request of the Son at the cross. For it's by the cross and by his blood that this promise is delivered. And God's perfect love and his justice and his mercy, all of these things convening at the cross, the center point of all of history. Friends, make no mistake, it was there because of your sin and your rebellion. In his grace, you have been spared. If you're a Christian this morning, you've been spared what we read in verse 9. If you have trusted in Christ, another promise of God delivered, his wrath poured out. There we see how he deals with people, how the king deals with people, or how the shepherd cares for his sheep. From the same hands, we see care for his people. And then from the same hands, we see the crushing of his enemies. The second, this crushing happening to protect and guard the first. King of kings has the perfect example in this. In God's strength, we not only see his enemies broken with iron, but we see their power and their dominion completely dashed. So frail is the, potter, the potter's vessel before the potter. His wrath on display with kingdoms so destroyed here that they can't be put back together. Such is the might of God's hand against his enemies that it says the wicked will not stand in judgment in Psalm 1. Driven out and crushed are God's enemies. Before the sun, it is the same. Friends, Christ's victory is sure. We see it promised in Genesis. We see it delivered at the cross. And then we see it realized on judgment day. Christian, this means that you have nothing to fear. Not the hand of an enemy, not the reign of a king, not even now the wrath of God for Christ's victory is won. The son of God for the anointed one we see it is no different. Friends, for those that trust Christ, the blessing is sure. This brings us to our fourth and final point there in verses 10 to 12. So come and follow him. So come and follow him. Verses 10 to 12. Our final section here opens with the word now showing us that there is a required response to the Lord and to the Son. With all that has gone before, David literally here in verses 10 is telling the kings, the kings to wise up, to wise up, to get wisdom, be wise, be warned. That echo from verse 2 coming again, rulers of the earth. He's saying to them, guys, you're not all that. You have to take seriously what Yahweh is saying in these verses, the warning he is giving, but also the mercy that he is offering. See that to worship God is not something we can do in the passive. It's not something we can do by omission. It's not something we can do in silence or by standing still. It's the same for you today. Those who stand 
not in open disobedience to God, but you stand in silence. You stand in silence towards him. Friends, this silence to him is sinful. You see in Acts 3, for example, Paul speaks to those who are in ignorance, reminding them of their responsibility. He says, and now, brothers, I know that you have acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. Friend, I offered to you the same warning this morning. Perhaps you're someone in authority. Perhaps someone sees you as a ruler of this earth. Perhaps you're just a good guy. Perhaps you're just a really generous girl here this morning. I'm to say that nothing you do, nothing you don't do, is enough before a holy God. In our final two verses, we see what the response should be. First to the Lord in verse 11, and then to the Son in verse 12. Let's be honest. They are just instructions on how to avoid punishment and death, but also the honor and the glory that is owed the Lord, that is owed to God. The first instruction is that the Lord is to be served. David shows the reader that God is so mighty, so powerful in ways that we cannot begin to understand. And so we must come in fear and trembling, full of praise and service. Submission to God is shown to be the ultimate way of wisdom. There is a call in these verses to to come and to lay one's life down for God, to give up the things of this world, bring them all before Him. Friend, to, to ignore this be such an incalculable risk to consider. David knew more than most what it would mean to come to God in reverence and awe at his mighty ways and in his amazing sovereignty. For David, having just received the promises of God in 2 Samuel, he then retreats and sits before the Lord and begins by saying, Who am I, Lord God? Who am I? Friends, how often is this your humble cry before the Lord, who am I? How too often for many of us, if not all of us, is our prideful cry to him, I have arrived. God, here I am, not who am I? We're so full of pride when we approach the Lord. We need to come with a heart of humility that David in verse 11 suggests, for all men must come before God, for our God is a consuming Fire, as the author of Hebrews says. For the rulers of foreign lands, this would have been the most difficult thing to do. To come and submit before another authority. Friends, let's not pretend our hearts, yours and mine, our hearts are no different. As we conclude there in verse 12, for us, this kiss sounds strange, maybe. But it's just how the anointing ceremony ends. It's a sign of honor. It's the sign of uh, one gives uh, to someone when they praise them. 
It's also the language we see in the Old Testament when Yahweh describes how the people have worshipped Baal, another god in 1 Kings. To kiss someone is to worship them. It says, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. Friends, to kiss is to worship. To kiss is to worship. The Son deserves praise. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is God. And he deserves all honor and praise. He must be worshipped. He is not just a prophet. He is not just a priest. He's not just the king. He is God. Those who refuse to worship Christ will perish. God has been gracious and patient, but if he is rejected, he will destroy. Blessed are all who take refuge in him, our psalm concludes. In him, in Jesus Christ. For a psalm full of wrath, I think it's a psalm of peace. This peace found perfectly in the Son of God, God's anointed one, Jesus Christ. This psalm is about him. The blessings of God come to us only through trusting Christ. Friends, this will be true for all eternity. And it really is the backbone to the whole of the Psalms. No matter, Christian, the trial or tribulation, the frustration or the foe, all our hope and trust is found in the Lord. What a hope we have in Jesus.